Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. A character-driven cinematic tale of deportation, migration and displacement, and opportunistic capitalism Call Center Blues follows four characters as they struggle to make sense of their lives in Tijuana. Each with a vastly different story, they are all linked by their displacement and the sole choice of call center work they have in a country that is so unfamiliar and oftentimes frightening, yet other times a ray of hope. The film has been shortlisted for the best documentary of the year in the short form category for this year's Oscars. And it is a terrific film, and we're so honored to have with us the director of that film, and that would be Gita Gundabir. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Tell me what drew you to this particular topic. So I come from an immigrant background myself. Um, My family migrated uh, over here in the 60s, and I was the first generation raised in the U.S. So, you know, this is, again, my, you know, the U.S. is my home. I've been following, like I'm sure a number of folks who are listening throughout the last eight years, you know, even before, just this sort of punitive policies that exist in our country around migration, and which seem to worsen uh, over the last eight years in many ways. Again, the policies that uh, around family separation and, you know, sort of ICE having uh, incredible amounts of power to deport people and, you know, remove them from their families and their communities, you know, that the sort of, it seems that we've been trending in a direction that has been unjustly cruel and, and damaging ultimately to our country, because when our communities are damaged, obviously there's a ripple effect. So I was, uh, I was following that intensely. And then I read an article actually in the New York Times that fascinated me about the communities that were springing up in Tijuana of deportees because the numbers were so high that there were you know, specific English speaking communities that were forming. And the, interestingly, these call centers that were also springing up sort of opportunistically to recruit the deportees um, because of their English speaking abilities. And that to me was, was kind of bizarre and, and uh, surprising, something I didn't realize um, was happening. And so, I mean, just, just, I think the irony of the fact that, you know, these folks who oftentimes had been brought to the US at a very young age maybe didn't know any other place other than the U.S. as their home, were being removed and sent, you know, to a country that was, by all means, for all practical purposes, foreign to them, and then working all day on the phone, talking to Americans, you know, who are calling to to speak, to complain about perhaps their dishwasher or to talk about, you know, their car insurance, and had no idea on the other end was someone who was used to live in the U.S. and was deported and what they might be going through. It, it seemed just like an incredible story. And I was, I really wanted to also shed a different light on the kind of narrative that has been ongoing here in the U.S. around deportation, where deportees are often criminalized. Right. So, you know, it was important to me to, to, to sort of highlight their resilience, their bravery, and, and what life was like for them on the other side. 
it's in the film. You, you mentioned that it's, uh, one of the men that we you highlight in the film since he was two years old. He was, and he's 50, I believe, or he's been in the United States 50 years. One of the things that comes across in the film is just, just the cruelty, the kind of the malevolent neglect and cruelty of this system. How did you get to know them? Yeah, no, no, I'm happy to, you know, to, to talk about it. So I have to, to mention that we had an incredible team on the ground because when, you know, when I began this, this process, when I, you know, when I found this story, of course, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not based in Tijuana, I'm based in Brooklyn, New York. So I really wanted, you know, to, and to figure out how to do the story and to do the story with a values based approach. Um, uh, making sure that again, you know, in working in documentary film, documentary film has always been a bit of a colonial exercise. I think historically throughout time, it's always, it's, it's sort of been the story of, uh, of folks who are not from a community, you know, again, mostly from European communities going to other communities and, and, you know, um, and telling their stories and oftentimes with the best intentions. But again, it was really, I think there's a movement in the doc industry to, as we say, decolonize the docs and just make sure that, that you are telling your these stories in the most um, ethical possible way right. that you are, um, that there's representation, um, you know, behind the lens and so that uh, from the communities so that they are more empowered to really to tell the stories the way that they should be and that we are just sort of more, that we are a vehicle for that. I, I went to Topic Stories and they were immediately interested and on board. And then I partnered with Multitude Films and they're an LGBTQ um, led company also in Brooklyn, New York. And they have the same sort of values-based approach that's important to me. Yeah. And we made sure to then find a team on the ground. So we had a local team based in Tijuana, a producer named Abraham Avila, who was fundamental in helping us find folks from um, like who work in the call centers, again, one of who owns a call center that were willing to go on camera. It's really for them, it's obviously for, for the deported, um, it's really obviously uh, a challenging thing and incredibly brave to go on camera. The deportees are stigmatized in Tijuana. They're often, because they are criminalized here, that effect, there's sort of a, a carryover to Tijuana. They are seen as um, having possibly, you know, done, done, essentially they're judged. The question is, what did you do to get kicked out of the country? Or right. what did you have possibly done? You know, you must have done something. You must have been, again, you must have done something illegal. You must have been a criminal. And even if it's obvious now, as we know, you know the, the policies are so punitive that any minor offense can get you thrown out, right? So I think, so the deportees, that's, they not only do they face sort of their alien, their separation from their families, alienation, but then they are the stigma that exists in Tijuana and they are not necessarily welcome. The locals feel that they are a dumping, you know, that Tijuana is a dumping ground for unwanted US, you know, folks who were, raised in the US who don't know their culture, who don't fit in, or they're just kind of coming into similarly, interestingly, to cause trouble and that they will cause trouble on that side of the border. Again, and that many of deportees, the minute they are deported, their decision, again, is to, is to cross back over. They want, they, they don't want, I mean, imagine being ripped from everything you know. You have, maybe you have small children, you have a wife. You're not going to sit still. You're not gonna say, well, I'm just gonna settle here and wait you try to go back across. So to find people to speak to us was challenging and because it's a risk for them. But the folks we found were incredibly generous and brave. And um, it's really, a, I have to credit the team in Tijuana 
for being critical in, uh, in finding them, gaining their trust, ensuring they understood we, we, that our policy was a do no harm policy and um, that we would do our best to, to not only represent their stories, but to protect their, protect them, their safety, their interests. Yeah, they are in many ways a stranger in a strange land. And from the, one, the country they've known for nearly all their life, they're suddenly um, considered an outlaw and have to be unsettled. Unsettled would be the, you know, in terms of just what that kind of, what that would do to you, it, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to imagine just being ripped out. For me, it'd be like being sent to Germany let's say, or Ireland or something like that, having never, ever set foot in either country. I want to remind our listeners, speaking with Gita Gundabir and uh, the uh, director, award-winning director of this film uh, called uh, Call Center Blues. As I said, it was, it's been on, it's on the short list for Oscar nomination for best documentary short form. Let's just very quickly, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time reviewing you mentioned at the beginning of our interview the eight years of, of policies by the United States. That includes the, the second half of the Barack Obama administration in the sense that he was a part of a pretty significant deportation effort during those last four years of his administration. And then, of course, the Trump administration came in and just uh, ramped it up to uh, an insanely inhuman level of dealing with, with, with uh, people in the country. When you see the this current administration, are you seeing anything that gives you any reason to believe that it'll be better or more of the same? Are we too early to be able to tell one way or the other in terms of policy? So interestingly, I, uh, I just was lucky enough to have a conversation with the head of the Center for Constitutional Rights, who literally said that no incoming administration has ever been able to change immigration, and he referred to it as migration policy, but migration policy drastically, um, it's never happened. That And that because the policies are sort of so deeply entrenched yeah. in, in our system that the, the amount of work that has to be done can't necessarily be accomplished in four years. It really takes which it will would take a tremendous amount, a tremendous will, amount of will to sort of undo the, everything that has been put in place. It wasn't just the last eight years, it's been put in place forever. Yeah. He said something that's really st stuck with me that was incredibly powerful, that people have always been uh, penalized and criminalized for seeking their freedom, unfortunately, in this country. And he referred to originally uh, enslaved Africans who, you know, again, sought their freedom by running away were criminalized, right? So you you look at, and and the policy for migrants is is comparative like it's it's very it's similar there's a similar sort of punitive uh, nature to the way that we that we treat migrants it's um, the idea of being here is an incredible privilege and you know anything you do revokes that privilege so anything that you do may you know you may stumble or you may break a law or anything can you can have that taken away and then of course the the way that migration um, has been shaped its policies have always been about how it impacts uh, the economy of our country, right? So that's also something that's deeply entrenched in this system. We sort of like a faucet that we, I've, I've heard this reference used by experts, but it's this faucet that we sort of turn off and on as the needs of our country there. Yeah, whether it be for agriculture, it's more, in some ways it's a more refined system of slavery. 
Yeah, <laughs> you could say that. Well, it's interesting. My own parents, um, for example, uh, came over in the 60s. And at that time, there was the Chinese Exclusion Act, which did not you know, allow them, technically would not have allowed them to settle here. But in 1965, because there was a need for scientists, um, there was, you know, if you, they suddenly that policy, it was upended, thankfully, by the Democrats, but it was really because they were looking for scientists. Right. And so, you know, the whole, I think a lot of people don't necessarily know this, but the, the you know, essentially the sort of influx of, of engineers and doctors at that time, which is now has become a sort of a stereotype on television, right, that every Indian person or South Asian person is a doctor. It's what the need was. And you, you, like you said, you see it for agriculture, et cetera. You see it for, for what, whatever is, is that fits what the, the government feels the needs of the country best. But the, I think on the other side of that, though, when you, the deportation system is really um, a penitentiary system. You know, you, yeah. when you think about it, the folks who are deported, I mean, it's, it's similar, to, similar to incarceration. You are taken from everyone you love, everything you know, and put in a place where you don't speak the language, where you have no community, you have no money, you have nothing, right? That right. is, and what's, what's interesting though is also too, in this, this last conversation that I had, what was an interesting reference was uh, COVID that, that came up was the fact that we are all currently right now experiencing separation, right? We are all separated from our, uh, you know, if we are at least being COVID safe and obeying the rules that, you know, that have been imposed by sometimes the federal and local government, right? We are all separated from our loved ones right now. We are missing things that we would want to do. We are missing birthdays. We are apart. We can't travel. We're stuck. In a way, that experience hopefully maybe garners, can garner some empathy you know, for, for folks who are deported and are, are in that situation. Yeah. And just to double back on something you brought up, uh, runaway slaves, one of the origin stories, one of the reasons for the sheriffs, sheriffs came about in reaction to slaves running away um, for freedom, running for their freedom. Correct. That, so these are things that we, I think, you know, after you've watched enough Western TV with with Marshall Dillon and all of the other, we we have completely lost sight of these many of these really troubling historic roots origins. You know, you make such a good point, but I think that speaks to the issue of why, like, no president in four years right. could possibly overturn this because our penal system was put in place. Again, the, the country is founded on, unfortunately, white supremacy, anti-blackness, right, and then. I get, that's the foundation. So un unless we dismantle that, we've, there's more dismantling to do. And I do feel, I mean, honestly, as you know, today, Biden's 100-day moratorium on <laughs> deportations was overturned. I think that the current administration is, I believe that they are trying. I think the key thing, as activists say, and as I think we all know, is that we cannot be complacent. Like we cannot, right. you know, there may have been a turnover, but it's, it's, again, the will of the people determines what happens. We must keep fighting. Right. We must push through. Oftentimes, the United States is faced with a season existential outside threat, like 9-11, huh. right, led to the expansion of the Border Patrol. The Border Patrol's area of, of um, jurisdiction expanded to 50 miles inland into the country, 
which allows them a basically, I think it's two thirds of the population of the country is within 50 miles of a border. So it was an immediate reaction to expanding immigration, policing, immigration enforcement. And every time you go back to World War II, incarceration or the uh, detention of the Japanese, when we're faced with what we perceive as an existential threat, are a lot of times we react in ways that belie a certain prejudice, certain uh, certain approach to the people who we see as not quite American enough. That's right. No, that's absolutely right. And you can see it in recent, I mean, in the last four years that we have the Muslim ban, right? Like yeah. post 9-11 too, there's been the surveillance of, you know, of communities, uh, you know, of entire Muslim communities. There's been, you know, again, the detention of countless you know, Muslim folks who, again, unwarranted, unjustified, there's been, but I think it, as you said, it's, it's in, it's our history, it's in the DNA of this country. So, and I think, you know, the best thing, one of the best things we can do, again, is to, to learn it, to study it, to recognize it, and then to push back against it until we do, right, we're doomed to repeat the mistakes. And it's just the same way we criminalize folks who are trying to enter the country, and then we criminalize them, when we deport them, right? It's a, it's a great story. It's a great distraction and a great story to tell people that, again, and, and it's also a pathway to dictatorship, to tell people there is an outside threat, you need me to protect you, or I will stop the, the, the hordes of unwashed masses who are coming in to try to rob you and kill you and rape you and all that sort of stuff. But that was the that was Trump's pitch coming down the, the golden escalator. That is exactly what he said. I mean, from the moment he stepped onto center stage to run for president, that was his first day. I've been on this kick of late because I've had a number of filmmakers on with documentaries about the country, the history of the country. And I've come to this idea, start small. And, and I call it the acknowledgement project. The fact is that we refuse as a country, to, we refuse to acknowledge that in 1619, human beings were brought to our country to be enslaved. One of the origin stories for for Wall Street was the fact that because of the slave trade, we needed a, a financial center in the country to be able to essentially process slaves coming into this country. So we have two, these significant parts of American culture and American experience and American history that we somehow refuse to even acknowledge. And I, I, I just, I think if once we acknowledge some of these basic facts, hopefully we can then start to, we can move forward, at least move forward with that we're operating with the same set of facts. And that's, I think that's a, I think that's, you make a really good point. And if you look at other countries that have been through, you know, reconciliation, yeah, reconciliation is critical. Like even if you look at um, what Germany has done, right, post-World War II, and it's, it's, it's not like, um, extremism and sort of fascism ever the threat of it ever it, it doesn't actually ever really go away right but it's it's essentially about doing the work to constantly keep it at bay yeah. there's always going to be fringe elements of society right. there's always going to be that those are always going to exist the danger is when it's coming from the government the danger is when it's in right. The White House, you know, I mean, that is what you really have to worry about. But you have to have laws in place as well to to keep things that are dangerous to the fabric of our democracy at bay. But part of it, when you know, if you look at countries that have come out of terrible things like genocide and mass destruction, like example, for example, and again, Germany being one of them post 
Holocaust, there is the idea of constantly educating, acknowledging, as you said, remembering, never forgetting, you know, like understanding how the country was led down that path. So it isn't repeated. And I think the denial, unfortunately, the denial in this country is one of the more challenging issues that we have. And what I did see, as I think you saw in the last four years, that there's always been extreme cruelty here, but it felt that there was a certain point post-civil rights movement where maybe some of those things became unacceptable. Seeing sort of the resurgence of that, of the extreme cruelty, the calls for violence, to making certain segments of our society, communities feel incredibly endangered. Like right now as well, there's a whole anti-Asian backlash and a a lot of violence happening against Asians, which again, stems from the rhetoric of the last administration. It always comes from that. We saw that in the eighties, you know, when Vincent Chin was murdered, like it's, there was an anti-Japanese sentiment. And then again, it's unfortunate that we have to repeat these things. I think the challenge, like when you look at deportation, family separation at the border, I think for migrants who are incoming to the country has struck a proper nerve. The ideas of children being ripped from their families or their parents has been an image horrifying enough to stir up good trouble. But I do think with deportations, unfortunately, the narrative around the criminalization has yet to be to, to be shifted. That is also family separation. It is absolutely family separation. You remove um, someone like a person from their community, from their family, from their children, right. if they're being deported. There's definitely good work being done around it, but it hasn't quite struck the same nerve. And I think that's something with this film we hope to do. Yes. Thank you for bringing us back. The film is called Call Center Blues, and we're talking with the director, Gita Gunbeer. This has been a pleasure. Thank you so very much. The film is called Call Center Blues. It is an Oscar-nominated, shortlisted uh, for uh, an Oscar nomination for Best Documentary Short Form. And we've been talking with the director, Gita Ganbir. Gita, thank you so very much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me.